Ah, Halloween, the one night a year when it's socially acceptable to dress up in a mask, go to strangers' homes, and blackmail them into giving you candy, all under the threat of violence. After 364 days of stranger danger, these little three-foot monsters are more than ready for this one night of throwing caution to the wind. You go ahead, little Johnny. You take that candy from that stranger. But does all of this put little Johnny at risk? Stories of poison laced candy and razor blade filled apples have frenzied parents digging through mounds of mounds of candy before the little sugar crazed monsters get their turn. We've all heard about the dangers of taking candy from strangers, especially on Halloween night. But have any children ever actually been hurt from this sort of thing? Or is this just a bunch of hearsay that is part of the master plan from parents everywhere to invoke the mommy and daddy candy tax? Hey y'all, I'm Christina and you're listening to History and Hearsay. On this show, we explore inspiring and sometimes dark and mysterious characters and events from history. So if that's something you're into, go ahead and subscribe because when it comes to history, things may not always be as they appear. And on this show, you get to decide, is it history or is it hearsay? When kids start gobbling down their Halloween treats, many parents are plagued with one haunting thought. What if some madman has filled their candy with poison, razor blades, needles, or some other terrifying foreign substance? We have all heard the stories, but does this common fear have any foundation in actual fact? Before we examine the evidence in this case, let's take this back a little bit. Why did kids even start trick-or-treating in the first place? Where does this tradition even come from? To answer this question, we need a little Halloween history lesson. Halloween has its roots in the Celtic Festival of Shaman. During this festival, the Celts celebrated the end of the year, and on October 31st, people would gather to pay homage to the dead. You see, the Celts believed that as we move from one year to the next, the dead and the living would overlap and demons would roam the earth. Because of this belief, they would dress up as demons so that if you were to encounter a demon in real life, then they would just think you were one of them. Which, I'm not really sure how they knew their costumes were accurate. Fast forward to the 9th century when the Catholic Church was taking over all the pagan holidays and trying to convert them into Christian celebrations, they turned the demon dress-up party into All Hallows' Eve, All Souls' Day, and All Saints' Day, and had people dress up as saints, angels, and still a few demons. I guess they didn't want to squash all the demonic fun. Adults and children would go around souling, which was where poor people would visit the homes of the wealthier people on All Hallows Day and ask for food. They would be given pastries called soul cakes in exchange for the promise to pray for the souls of the homeowner's deceased relatives on the next day, which was All Souls Day. By the late 1800s, there was a tradition in Scotland and Ireland known as gauzing, where children dressed up in costume or disguises and traveled door to door asking for treats. Rather than pledging to pray for the dead, they would sing a song, recite a poem, tell a joke, or perform some other sort of trick before collecting their treat, which typically consisted of fruits, nuts, or coins. This tradition made its way to the United States with the Irish immigrants who were escaping the potato fingermen in the 1800s. Americans quickly got in on the trick-or-treat action, and by the early 20th century, kids begging for candy caught on. Along with some pranks and vandalism, yeah, it sounds like something Americans would like. 
The term trick-or-treating was first seen used in 1927, and from that point on, the modern tradition of trick-or-treating has continually grown. However, it was not always widely accepted. In the 1930s, many adults didn't know what trick-or-treating was, and costumed children would have to explain it when they came to their door. Look, lady, give me some candy or I'm going to the paper your house. Does that explain it? Yes, my parents know I'm here. They're the ones who sent me. Many adults did not like trick-or-treating and took the threat of a trick as extortion. Others felt that having children go door-to-door was just as bad as begging. It's even said that many children were against the idea as well. In 1948, a group of young boys were seen carrying a banner that said, American children do not beg. However, by the 1950s, trick-or-treating was a well-established American tradition. And today, it's said that over 80% of families plan on distributing candy to children on Halloween, and more than 90% of children plan on participating in trick-or-treating or some other Halloween-related activities. Halloween is now a $6 billion a year industry with Americans spending over $2 billion on candy alone. Now that we have a brief history around the traditions and have determined that Americans love Halloween and candy like a lot, that brings us back to the issue of poisoned candy. For an act to qualify as a Halloween poisoning, poisoned candy has to be handed out on a random basis to children as part of the trick-or-treating ritual inherent to Halloween. This act cannot be targeted to any one specific child. Tales of black-hearted madmen doiling out poisoned Halloween candy to unsuspecting little tykes has been around for as long as I can remember. But there doesn't seem to be a lot of hard facts backing up these claims. So where did this all start? The first reports of Halloween treats being tampered with in North America was in 1959. That Halloween, a California dentist handed out 450 candy-coated laxatives to children in his neighborhood, and about 30 of them got really sick. He was charged with outrage of public decency and unlawful dispensing of drugs. You have to wonder, this guy was a dentist. Like, had he never heard of job security? Another high-profile case made headlines in 1964 when a 47-year-old woman in New York handed out bags of treats containing arsenic-laced ant traps, metal mesh scrubbing pads, and dog biscuits. Now, the ant traps were clearly labeled poison, and she even told the kids that it was a joke when she passed them out. And she also told the police that she didn't mean it maliciously. She was just annoyed by the Halloween custom. She apparently thought the kids who were coming to her door were too old to be trick-or-treating. And while no one was injured, she was prosecuted and pled guilty to endangering children. She was also later committed to a state hospital for mental observation. If you don't like Halloween, candy, and kids, you best believe we're going to be checking your head. Okay, so aside from this strange dentist who apparently didn't care about recurrent business and one grumpy Karen, what other cases are there? Have any kids actually ever been poisoned by Halloween candy? There have actually been five confirmed cases of children who died after eating Halloween candy. The first three of these cases involved a two-year-old in 1978, a seven-year-old in 1990, and a four-year-old in 2001. All three of these cases were determined to have been caused by existing medical conditions, and the investigation determined no poison was found in the children's system. In the case of the seven-year-old, her parents had immediately informed the police of the child's existing medical condition, but early press reports still came out blaming poisoned candy. 
1970, a five-year-old Michigan boy named Kevin died after eating his Halloween candy. But upon further investigation, discovered that Kevin had actually gotten into his uncle's drug stash and the family had attempted to cover it up by sprinkling the powdery substance all over his Halloween candy. In 1974, an eight-year-old Texas boy named Timothy O'Brien died after eating cyanide-laced pixie sticks while trick-or-treating. Although the poisoning initially looked like it might have been the work of a deranged homeowner, the investigation soon zeroed in on the boy's father, Ronald O'Brien. A bit of dicking... A bit of digging revealed that Ronald had recently taken out life insurance policies on both of his children. While the initial evidence was circumstantial, police quickly built a case that O'Brien had given both Timothy and his daughter Elizabeth poisoned candy to try to collect on the life insurance policies. To help cover his tracks, Ronald had also given two other children cyanide pixie sticks. Luckily, his daughter and the two other children had passed on the pixie sticks in favor of other candy. The prosecution was able to prove that Ronald had purchased cyanide and that he and a neighbor had accompanied the children on their door-to-door mission. They also determined that none of the places they visited that night were handing out pixie sticks. Ronald O'Brien ended up being convicted of murdering his son and was later executed for his crime. While this crime was horrific, it's not the sort of random poisoning that parents are warned about. So while this is a case of death by poisoned candy, that's true, it was targeted murder and therefore does not qualify as a Halloween poisoning. Professor Joel Bass, the leading and possibly only candy tampering expert, said that in all of his research of Halloween candy tampering in the U.S., dating all the way back to the 1950s, he couldn't find a single report of a child who was killed or seriously injured from a contaminated treat received during trick-or-treating. He claims that this is a contemporary legend and that's all it is. So while children have been poisoned by Halloween candy, these cases are not the random acts of strangers and therefore cannot be counted as Halloween poisoning under the traditional sense, but more criminals using the holiday as a cover-up for their crimes. During his research, Professor Best followed up on 200 confirmed cases of candy tampering in the U.S. and Canada, and his research concluded that the vast majority were hoaxes. Bess acknowledges that it is possible for someone to pass out treats with the intent to harm children, but questions why there are never multiple reports in the same area. Bess said in some instances, kids tampered with their own candy to get attention, or a friend or family member played a prank that went awry, or a foreign object ended up in candy during the manufacturing process. So if these are just hearsay or tall tells, then why do they persist? Well, there were the Talanau murders of 1982, where seven Chicago people died after taking randomly poisoned pain medication. This incident was reported only one month before Halloween, so it was fresh on everyone's mind, and there was an influx of copycat incidents reported. I can't say I blame them for being terrified. If someone could do this to pain medication, why not candy? If you guys haven't heard about that case, stay tuned because I have a video coming on it. To this day, it's never been solved and it's a pretty interesting case. So after that terrifying event, it's no wonder there was an influx of news stories in the 1980s warning parents to keep their children safe from criminals who might want to poison candy. The news media reported many of these tampering candy stories during the 1980s, but they would report the story prior to a full investigation and then often never even follow up. 
So once the claims of poisoned candy eventually were proven false, the public wasn't given an update. This happened many times over, and by 1982, the media had driven the hysteria about candy poisoning to such a point that an ABC News poll found that 60% of parents feared that their children would be injured or killed because of Halloween candy sabotage. Also in 1982, an article in the New York Times urged parents to look through their children's candy before allowing them to eat it. And in 1983, the Dear Abby column that was super, super popular at that time urged the same. Now, Professor Joel Bess does note that we can't blame it all on the media because word of mouth does play a big role here as well. There's our hearsay. But I mean, if you hear about your cousin's, neighbor's, uncle's, coworker's, cat's, owner's kid getting poisoned by candy, of course you're going to tell everyone you know to check their Halloween stash. Okay, so while it can't hurt to check your kid's Halloween candy before letting them go ham or just forego trick-or-treating altogether in favor of your local church's fall festival, poisoned candy may not be as big a deal as we have always been led to believe. But what about foreign objects in your candy? According to Professor Bass, while he has been unable to confirm any cases of candy poisoning, there have been about 80 confirmed cases of kids finding sharp objects in their Halloween candy. But most of these cases have been confirmed to have been placed there by a family member as a prank and haven't resulted in any fatalities. During this time, some hospitals and police departments took to x-raying bags of Halloween plunder, and in 1988, Maryland Hospital Center reported discovering a needle detected by x-ray in a candy bar. But there's never been an arrest or resolution in that case. Compared to cyanide poisoning, the potential downside of biting into a sharp object is fairly low. The worst of these verified reports resulted in someone needing to get a few stitches to close a cut in their mouth. And while that would definitely be enough to ruin your day, and it's probably a good idea to give the bag of Halloween treats a good once-over, it's not quite as terrifying as just falling over dead after eating some sugary treats. Despite decades of parental worry, the first confirmed organized attempt to spoil Halloween with sharp objects didn't happen until 2000. That year, James Joseph Smith of Minneapolis allegedly stuck needles in the Snickers bars he handed out to trick-or-treaters. While several of the children did bite into the candy bars he passed out, the only injury was a teenager who was pricked by one of the needles, and he didn't even go to see a doctor because his wound was so relatively small. But you guys best believe, if I got poked by a needle, especially if I didn't know where it came from, I would be going to the doctor. So I wouldn't be using this guy as an example of how small that, I mean, a needle prick could be a big deal. That would, that would freak me out. I mean, my sister's a nurse, so maybe there's, that's part of it. But if you get poked by a needle and you don't know where it came from, go get checked out. Okay. Cause that could be serious. In the end, police did charge Smith with one count of adulterating a substance with intent to cause death harm or illness. So it was a pretty serious charge, I'm guessing. At least the police realized this was a pretty serious thing. But it has been found that almost all reported tampering cases, usually at a rate of only one to two per year, involve a friend or family member. Usually it's a prank. And because it's a prank, they're not really trying to hurt someone, more just scare them. They don't usually use poison. It's usually sharp objects, which, I mean, to me, it's not really a funny prank. If I bit into something, anyway. 
I don't know. Maybe I'm just not, I'm not as chill as some people. I don't know. And three quarters of these pranks resulted in no injuries, while the rest were only minor injuries. Like I said before, the needing stitches or something like that, which again, I wouldn't find that too funny, but that's just me. The candy industry even did their own research study where they, they tried to find every incident of contaminated candy and they tried to follow up on all of them. While there might be some uh, concerns about bias here, because I mean, I don't know. They concluded that there was nothing really to find and 95% of the cases were hoaxes. Professor Bess also likes to note that it's pretty easy just to stick like a pen, a needle, some kind of sharp object down in candy and then just run to your parents and be like, Mom, Dad, look what I found in my Halloween candy. There have actually been a few confirmed cases where that's exactly what happened. It was just kids playing pranks on their parents. And Professor Bess loved to tell a story of a youngster who ate half of a candy bar, sprinkled like some kind of ant poisoning all over the other half, and then ran to his parents and were like, but conveniently the half he'd already eaten was totally fine. However frightening these warnings were, and honestly still are, they didn't stem from factual real life events, according to Professor Bess. Instead, the poisoned Halloween candy narrative is what Bess likes to call an example of a contemporary legend. After researching through decades of reports, Professor Bess has not found a single confirmed case of a child dying from Halloween candy they received while they were out trick-or-treating. Bess likes to stress that there's very little to be worried about when it comes to your Halloween candy, but he also feels like there is certainly no harm in checking your kids' bags, especially if it makes you feel better. Or here's a thought, maybe we shouldn't be eating food that strangers give us. I mean, I don't know. I know it's one of those things. I, I didn't grow up doing it, so maybe that's where my perspective comes from, but I'm like, I don't know. It just feels weird to me to take anything, even if it's packaged, you know, it seems safe. It just feels weird to take something from a stranger unless it's like at your school or your church or like where you know people. Like, I don't know. That's just me. And again, maybe it's just because I didn't grow up doing it. I just feel like it is a kind of a weird tradition. <laughs> And sadly, I mean, we can't really trust people anymore, can we? I mean, you used to, maybe this all started in a time when we could trust people, but I just feel like you can't trust people anymore. Or maybe you could never trust people, but now we can catch them because we have cameras. That's probably a more accurate statement. I do think there's a lot of good people in the world, though. Don't get me wrong. Regardless, Professor Bess thinks that it might actually be worth spending more time on making sure your children are safe in other aspects of Halloween, rather than just being focused on the candy. Halloween is actually one of the most dangerous holidays for kids due to the potential of getting hit by cars because they're all just running around at night, dressed up in costumes, we're, you know, on the street and everything. And the risk of them getting hit by cars, Professor Best believes, is a lot worse than them actually, the potential of them being poisoned by candy from a stranger. And according to him, you know, the potential of them tripping over their own costume is more dangerous than the candy, but you know, that's his opinion. In the end, Professor Bass seems to think if there is someone down the block who is so crazy that they would go around poisoning all the kids Halloween in the whole neighborhood, then why would they wait until one night of the year in Halloween to do it? But to that, I say, Professor Bass, you must never have heard of a crime of convenience when all these kids are coming to your door, especially, I mean, if you have some weirdo who's like been really wanting to do this, but there's not just like kids coming to his door every day, right? And so then one day, oh, 50 kids are coming to my door tonight. What do you, th- what, what do you think a crime of convenience is? 
Personally, I think that the reason these kind of stories stay with us so long is that there's just enough accuracy there to make these stories credible enough to cause a widespread concern. These crimes would be easy enough to commit, and we all know people are crazy. Add to that the entire nature of Halloween, Halloween. Add to that the entire nature of Halloween, the spookiness, dressing up, pulling pranks, and and all the demonic things that most of us don't even like to think about. And all that makes the idea of dangerous strangers very compelling. And it doesn't seem too far of a stretch. Even though I don't think we can ever be 100% certain about things like this, just because it wasn't caught or reported doesn't mean it's never happened. Do you guys have a story that has so been impressed on you your entire life that even if you found out with 100% certainty that it was false, it would change nothing? That's kind of how I feel about this one. You guys let me know what you think. I mean, really, how are we supposed to go about our whole life being told, don't take candies from stranger, and then all of a sudden, we're okay with it just one night of the year? Oh, don't take candy from strangers or get in their creepy vans, except on October 31st when they are openly wearing a disguise, then okay, I guess it's fine. But I do think we can say that Halloween candy poisonings are probably not the epidemic we have been led to believe they are. As it's been reported that the only fatalities reported from these types of incidents have been accidents or actual family members who had the intent to do harm, not strangers. So the moral of the story here, keep an eye on the weird family members. So what do you guys think about this one? Is it history or is it hearsay? Do you guys think that maybe there are some actual like stories of this that just haven't officially been documented or called? If you're watching this on YouTube, let us know what you think in the comments down below. Or if you're listening to the podcast version of this episode and you enjoyed it, leave us a review and tell a friend. If everyone tells just one person about this podcast, it'll be hugely successful. And that's what we all want, isn't it? Right? That's what we, that's what we all want. All of us here. That's what we want. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and stay tuned for more episodes coming soon.